let's once again, let's welcome Luke as he comes to be with us. I'm going to use this one. Uh, so thank you, but you're suckers for punishment coming back for more. Um, so yeah, I'm going I'm to pick up um, on some of what I was talking about this morning. And there's going to be, I'm going to kind of walk through various ways of explaining things. Uh, and there'll be some time for just questions amongst yourselves through what I'm leading through. We're going to be a long time for Q&A at the end. But I just want to get some questions out in talking amongst yourselves before we get to the kind of bigger Q&A, just so get the synapses firing and get you kind of in, 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 in the zone, as it were. Um, so I'm going to begin with a quote, and then we're going to discuss what we actually mean by politics. Um, so in, in April of 1890, John J. Ingallis, who was the Democratic senator from Kansas, was asked by a journalist um, what he thought of politics and whether he thought political ends justified uh, any, any kind of specific means. Um, and this, this is his response. If we can, have I got it up on the... Yeah, so here we go. So he says, The purification of politics is an iridescent dream. Government is force. Politics is a battle for supremacy. Parties are the armies. The Decalogue and the Golden Rule have no place in a political campaign. The object is success. The, uh, to defeat the antagonist and expel the party in power is the purpose. The Republicans and Democrats are as irreconcilably opposed to each other as were Grant and Lee in the wilderness. They use ballots instead of guns, uh, but the struggle is the same. In war, it is lawful to deceive the adversary, to hire Hessians, they're kind of assassins, uh, to purchase mercenaries, to mutilate, to destroy. The commander who lost a battle through the activity of his moral nature would be the derision and jest of history. This modern cant about corruption in politics is fatiguing in the extreme. So this is uh, one view of politics. It builds on a long tradition uh, of thinking about politics as war by other means. And we could think about someone like Machiavelli, we could think about um, Thucydides, going right back to the ancient Greeks, reflecting on this, if you read his history of the Peloponnesian Wars. Um, there's a long way of thinking about politics as war by other means, and kind of all bets are off, uh, and we can really do anything necessary to win. I want to I kind of explore a different vision of politics and say that isn't the only tradition. There's an equally ancient, uh, uh, equally, uh, and, and I would say richer and more humane tradition of politics, of thinking about politics as this cultivation of a common life, and particularly of a just and generous common life. But before we get into that, just be helpful to get a sense of, just lift, lift up your hand, like, what, when I say the word politics, what does it spark for you? What, what does it mean for you? What do you tend to think of in the word politics? Just raise it. Sorry? Acrimony, acrimony. What? Conflict. Fraction. Corruption, corruption. Other? Anxiety. Anxiety. Right. Power. Right. Right. Polis is city. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. That, no, that's exactly, and we're, we're going to explore exactly that theme. But it's, it's, we're not without good cause. All those negative terms, we're not without good cause for having some sense that, you know, politics is not as it should be. There is corruption. There are asymmetries of power to be negotiated. Uh, there, there, there is conflict. Um, it can be a dirty business. And all of that is part of politics. The, the thing is, is that the only story we tell about politics? Is that the only thing to say about politics? Uh, or are, are there other things to say, a kind of bigger picture in which all that other stuff, the kind of neg negative stuff and negative associations we have, that, that are kind of operative in politics? And very much building on what, what's just been said, this kind of goes back to a figure like Aristotle, but I think it's there in scripture in the picture of the covenant and a kind of covenantal relation. I think there are many traditions that share a sense of polis, uh, of, of politics as this cultivation of, of a common life. Um, and this sense, if we think about what it means to be human, to be human is inherently to be a vulnerable creature who can't survive without the care of others. We, we don't last very long outside of community. Um, and so we're not, this idea of being kind of individuals just by ourselves, uh, and, and that's really the only kind of politics there is, is individuals making choices and then you somehow aggregate those choices. That's not actually a true picture of what the kind of how we actually operate as human animals. And this was Aristotle's point. He, he calls uh, the, the human animal as a zoon politicon in, in, in Greek. It means a kind of a political animal. And what did he mean by that is not everyone really deep down wants to write briefings for their senator. Um, it's not that kind of thing. Um, that might be an aspiration for some of you. Um, but it's much more that if to be human is to inherently be enmeshed in relations of care and interdependency. And if we're going to um, survive, we have to live with others. And if we're going to, let alone not just survive, but thrive, i.e. come into some fullness of who we are as individuals, uh, we need some kind of just and generous common life for us to flourish as humans. Now, what we think of as justice, what we think of as flourishing, our vision of the good life, you know, Hindus have got one view, Christians and myriad between them have got different views, Islam another view, various secular humanist philosophies. But the basic sense is, if we're going to flourish as human animals, we need others, and not only do we just need others, we need the quality and character of our relations one with each other to be just and generous. And if they're not just and generous, more often than not what's happening is some people might be prospering, i.e. might be materially having a decent time of it, but that prospering is normally built off the backs of those who are not prospering, of who are being burdened so that others don't have to be burdened. And that's the relation of injustice that we're often kind of having to attend to. So politics, at its, as it's most basic, as I, as I kind of mentioned this morning, uh, politics, as it's most basic, is this forming, norming, 
and cultivating of a common life amid, amidst real disagreements about what we think human flourishing involves, amidst real asymmetries of power that have to be navigated, uh, and between competing material interests. I might, it might benefit me, like, let's take a school, um, the interests of the teacher, the interests of the parent, the interests of the pupils, the interests of the managers of the school, they're going to have different interests. They've got a shared good. If the school doesn't flourish, all of their interests uh, uh, wither, and none, no one flourishes. But, you know, what it means to be a teacher might be different and in conflict from the commitments and needs of the parent, and, and they have often very rival visions of, you know, what should be in the curriculum. So there's, there's real negotiation uh, and conflicting interests and conflicting visions of the good and differentials of power to be navigated in that context, even in that micro-context. And we can think about any context, the firm, the church, Los Angeles, the nation. We've got COP26 all meeting in Glasgow, the globe. Politics, whether the local micro-level or through to the global level, involves that kind of negotiation. Uh, and, and that, as I said this morning, the alternative to that is either killing people, creating systems of coercion so we don't have to form a common life with them, just get them to do what we want, or causing them to flee. And those really are the only, that's, it, it's not rocket science, it really isn't rocket science, it's very, very basic. Um, and, and, then, and then kind of the rest of what we think of as politics, the systems and structures, the voting systems, bureaucracy, law, that's all gravy to the basic thing of, are we going to do some kind of common life together? And, and is the quality and character of the relations of that common life going to be in some way, shape, or form just and generous or not? Is it going to be violent rather than peaceable? Is it going to be mean rather than generous? Is it going to be unmerciful or forgiving? Um, you know, so that, 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 then we can get into the bits of the, the quality and character of that. So the implication of this is that to become human is necessarily to be embedded in relations of care, even when these cause toil, grief, and pain. And they will, as we know, you know, whether it's looking after kids or I've got older parents, like whatever it is, we're in, to be embedded in relations of care is to inherently be in, in burdened with the care of others. But we are also those who are cared for and can be a burden to others. So it, it's not that it, you avoid, this isn't a rosy picture, it's just a kind of practical description of the reality we're immersed in. Um, and as the story of Cain and Abel suggests, to deny how we come to be through mutually responsible, cooperative fellowship with others is to deny our humanity, it's to become less than human in some way and turn away from God. But equally, to become fully human is to embrace those burdens of care, embrace that interdependency and all that language of love and fellowship and solidarity and uh, uh, faithfulness. These are all terms that give voice to relationships of interdependency, mutual responsibility, fellowship and care. Uh, and the church is meant to be witness to a particular quality and character of caring for each other and showing how that is through, through the certain quality and character of our relations one with another, we can become more truly human. We can become fully who we are created to be and bear witness to who we will be in Christ. So this, of course, I think, is 
partly at the heart of the story of Exodus, which isn't just a story of liberation uh, from oppression. It's also perhaps more fundamentally, and we, although we don't often think about it this way, a story of a movement from merely surviving to becoming a people whose common life was characterized by justice and righteousteness, or in Hebrew, mishpat, tedzaki um, mishpat, which means a kind of justice and righteousness. It's the kind of rough translation of it. And this just and generous common life of interdependent care and mutual blessing was meant to be a picture of what true human flourishing consisted of, and therefore a witness to all the nations to be a sign of what it truly meant to be human. Um, and when the Israelites want to turn back to Egypt, a place where there was bread but no freedom, bread but no justice, bread but no generosity, is a turn away from the true picture of a turn away from, from real flourishing and what it means to be characterized as the people of God who point to what true flourishing involves. Now, I think often then in Exodus, as we see in Exodus, the need for the movement from merely surviving and being often in a context of oppression or where what it means to be human is denied or destroyed or desecrated begins with a cry. And obviously, Exodus opens with God hearing the cry of the people. And I think that's true also in political life. So change begins with a cry. And scripture is a very noisy text when you, when you really listen to it. It's full of cries of amazement, astounding, there's laughter, there's kind of shouts of joy, cries of pain. And as we'll see in a bit, uh, it's full of laments as, as well. Uh, but this cry going up is the beginning of kind of new possibilities, as in Exodus, of new possibilities emerging. And I think part of our task today in thinking about what is politics is listening to the cries of those around us and then this question of whose cries do we really listen to to get a sense of what needs changing so that we all might flourish. Um, and that's, that's a question of discernment. But the basic commitment to listen should be the most basic act of Christians. Faith itself begins with listening. So Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the word of Christ. And through, you got it? Oh, yeah. Um, so through listening and responding to the word of God, the church is assembled as a public body out of the nations. We don't, there is no church unless we hear the word of God. Uh, the reformers were very big on this by ex to out of hearing the church is church is assembled and so we have this double movement of listening and then responding and acting in response to that uh, to what we've heard and in being called out this body which we call the church is assembled to hear with god uh, we listen with god for the cries of creation to know what needs healing, what needs ministry, what needs uh, attending to and loving so that it might be healed and restored. And I think that's this sense of hearing uh, has kind of two aspects to it. Obviously, we're very keen as good Bible-believing Christians on listening to the Word of God, and that is vital. We have to listen 
to the word of God to become church and, and to be faithful Christians. The trouble is, though, uh, if we just listen to the word of God in Scripture, but hear not the cries of the oppressed and those who are hurting, then we're like the slavers who read their scriptures diligently but couldn't hear the cries of those they whipped and lynched. And that's not a good place to be. But equally, if we just hear the cries of the oppressed and hear, don't truly listen to the word of God, then we're like some self-righteous vanguard who think we can do no wrong and we have all the answers and don't have the humility to know that we have to trust in God and listen to others because we don't have a monopoly on the truth uh, and not, no one has a monopoly on wisdom. So it must be this listening to the cries of the poor and oppressed and listening to the word of God to properly orientate ourselves in the world. And I think Jesus Christ, in a sense, embodies all aspects of what it means to truly listen. As the word, he's the revelation of God showing forth what needs changing. As the crucified that cries out to God and us in his dereliction, he embodies the cry of the oppressed and as the resurrected, he signifies the possibility and reality of a new kind of hopeful, loving way of life. And as the ascended Lord, whose spirit is poured out at Pentecost, Christ provokes cries of joy and amazement that change is possible, that a new life is possible here and now in the midst of everything we see around us. So theologically, listening to God and neighbor is a performance of faith that whatever the relations between oneself and another, whatever the divisions, whatever the discord and conflict and differences of how life should go, that there's a deeper truth that ultimately all things are reconciled in Christ. And so the simple act of listening is a witness to the reality that Christ is the creator through whom all things are made, and Christ is the Savior through whom all things will be reconciled. And so that act of listening trusts that that is the real truth of the reality we're confronting, and not that the conflict or difference or uh, sense of uh, a kind of argument is really what defines us, that there's a deeper truth which defines our relation one with another, and as Christians we're to bear witness to that. But I think also... That act of listening, the simple act of listening, seemingly very, very simple, but that simple act of listening is itself a profoundly countercultural act. In our own context, we're immersed with stories which tell us we have nothing in common, we're locked into cultural or ethnic silos that can share nothing, or we're just a bunch of individual consumers who the only thing we share is kind of contractual exchanges, uh, and really we're on our own kind of individual self-actualization paths. And I think what the simple act of listening says, actually, uh, we do have a shared life in common. You are somebody uh, that matters, because in listening to you, what you're really saying, you're saying you matter, you have a story, you have a voice, you are somebody who deserves to be listened to in a world in which so many are told that they're not worth listening to or you don't have to listen to anyone. And so I think there's a profoundly countercultural witness in that very, very, very simple act of beginning with, with listening. But of course, sadly, we're caught up in systems and structures which 
eviscerate, I use that word advisedly, eviscerate our ability to respond to the cries of others and to really listen to what people are saying. Now, I use the word eviscerate because it, it means the viscera, your guts. Um, and to eviscerate is literally to rip out your guts uh, from you. And in Scripture, the guts was, was, the, was the site at which you were moved to compassion, uh, to respond to others. And we see this played out in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and what we, what we have in that parable, we've got the priest and the uh, Levite. These are good people. Uh, they've got a call to make a difference in the world. Uh, they have vocations to care. But they've been caught up in structures and systems uh, they, you know, the demand to always reach the bottom line, the demand uh, to kind of meet quotas and targets, the demand to kind of maintain professional identities, which means you don't really get involved and you've got to keep a kind of impartiality, a whole set of systems and structures and, and identities which have emptied them out of their ability to respond with compassion to the violated body that they encounter on the road to, to Jericho. Whereas the Good Samaritan comes along, and in, in the New Testament Greek, it talks about it's esplanante. It's, he's literally he's moved in his entrails. He's moved to, uh, to compassion to, to respond to this traumatized body that he's encountered. Um, and I think the Levite and the, and the priest, as I said, they're good people. We often kind of, you know, I've heard many sermons and we kind of vilify them. I don't want to vilify them. These are, these are good folk. It's just they've lost their guts. They've literally lost the ability to respond. Uh, and, and I think that's the situation for a lot of us. Not, I think we could you know, look at particular professions of care, you know, doctors, nurses, teachers, social workers. But I think a lot of us are in this. I teach, and you know, I'm subject to these systems and structures, and I often fail to hear, really hear to what a student is really saying and don't respond out of place of compassion. I've got five things to do and papers to mark and, you know, that kind of process. So I don't encounter the human before me. I counter a kind of scheduling problem. Um, and I think this is a, a real problem we have in, in our own day. So how do we reawaken and re-energize that sense of compassion and solidarity so we're moved to build a more just and generous common life with others around us, even in very small places and small ways? I think organizing people to work together for meaningful change towards a more just and generous common life in, involves identifying what motivates them to act together. And that's often, what are they asking? What do they love? And also, and this is going to be a bit controversial, what are they angry about? But I think we misunderstand what anger is. So I just want to kind of unpack that term, because obviously it's a lot. We live in a very angry age. Um, but there are different kinds of anger. And I think there's good anger and bad anger. So I'm just going to unpack that. So I think another way of framing this is to say, uh, what I, to echo what I was saying this morning about putting people before program and not coming, how do we not come to a situation having already preconceived ideas about what, what matters and what needs to change, but actually taking the time to discover what people actually care about, are willing to come together about and work on together. And I think underlying any movement for meaningful change is this connection between love and anger. 
So our delight in our landscape, in our children, family, friends, and work quickly turns to anger and grief-filled cries when they're threatened, corroded, or we feel that they're being desecrated in some way. And this link between love, anger, and shared action uh, is articulated, I think, beautifully in a, in a document called The Tent of the Presence. And The Tent of the Presence was written by some black pastors in cities like Detroit and Chicago and Atlanta who came together actually in the early 1980s. And they were looking at the kind of post-industrial landscape and seeing the rise of addiction and kind of family breakdown and were lamenting what was going on in their communities. And they wrote this document as a kind of charter for what they were about. And this is, this is how they defined anger. We can, yeah, I don't know if you can read that. Yeah, so they say it's anger is not, uh, it's not temper, not the hot words exchanged when a driver ahead cuts you up, nor does anger imply violence as we've been taught to assume. No, anger comes from the old Norse word for anger, which means grief. Grief implies that there's a vision a vision of a good life that was or that could have been. Anger and grief are rooted in our most passionate memories and dreams. A father whose spirit has been tried by demeaning work or no work, a brother or sister lost to violence or alcohol or drugs, a church vandalized by an arsonist, a college career sabotaged by an underfunded and increasingly poor education system, a neighborhood of shops and families and affections and relationships ripped apart because the banks won't lend to it because insurance companies wouldn't insure it, because local authority staff wouldn't service it, because the youth wouldn't respect it, or because teachers wouldn't teach in it. Anger sits precariously between two dangerous extremes. One extreme is hatred, the breeding ground of violence. The other extreme is passivity and apathy, the breeding ground of despair and living death. So I think the pastors who wrote this echo many who recognize identifying what people are grieving for uh, and what, i.e., in that sense of anger, is crucial for generating change. And they give birth to forms of public speech uh, which rally others together to work for change. So deeply personal testimony, often born out of traumatic events, gives, is a catalyst for public action. And that helps... Uh, uh, and I think a good example of this, uh, whatever one thinks of it, was the... Uh, 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 the George Floyd, kind of what happened to George Floyd and then how that sparked a worldwide movement. Uh, but there was that sense in which this outpouring of grief and lament generated public action for change and a public call for change. But the, the scriptural term for this kind of grief is lament. So I just want to open up what we mean by lament. So lament is not melancholy, uh, melancholy is this sense of kind of listlessness where we can't really think what needs changing. We don't really have energy for change. Nor uh, is um, it despair where we have the kind of bite of any vision of hope uh, or any desire uh, to do anything. Rather, it's lament, which I've put up there, is structured uh, grief orientated to hope for a better configuration of the world as it is. I'll say that again. It's structured grief orientated to hope for a better configuration of the world as it is. So lament is born out of a kind of deep, unflinching dwelling with the hard realities and struggles of the world as it is. 
uh, and at the same time, abiding in the hope of a movement towards the world as it should be. And lament is, I think, the first step to orientating ourselves so as not to be destroyed by affliction. It expresses a longing for transformation and a, a kind of grief-filled sense that the world as it is is not the world as it should be. Uh, and, but the, crucially, though, lament assumes that you will be heard. And, and we think about Psalm 20 more, my, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an assumption that God will hear. Even the, the, what's called the imprecatory psalms, which are the kind of angry psalms, in, in what we'd use in that kind of more negative sense of anger. The angry psalms are about uh, trusting that actually God will hear our anger and frustration and, and kind of desperation, and that but we will be heard. Um, and so lament is an orientation to change. But I think we have to reckon with the paradox in the, in the kind of world before Christ returns, that the flip side of lament is praise, but also the praise without lament is not uh, fully present either. So for Christians, before Christ's return, we can neither praise without lament, otherwise we just end up with a trite triumphalism, nor lament without praise, because that leads to pessimism and despair. And often I think what we have in the church is we have such an emphasis on praise, we miss out the lament, and people can't bring their lament to God and bring their lament to each other. And so what we have then is a kind of unstructured anger directed all over the place rather than a drawing together of our grief uh, and expressing that to God and recognizing that as part of the depth of the human experience that is caught up in Christ and in our life with God. And I think in the Christian liturgical year, this cycle of feasting and fasting embodies this through time. We have Advent before the Feast of Christmas, which is a time of lament and fasting. Uh, and obviously we have Lent before Easter, which is a season of lament and fasting before the Feast of Easter. In the North American context, this interconnection between lament and praise in prophetic speech, which is calling for change, is most, I think, most directly expressed in the blues and the spirituals. For example, when you um, take the kind of following spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I think I've got, oh yeah, there we go. I won't sing it to you because my singing voice is not good, but nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. Oh, yes, Lord. Sometimes I'm almost to the ground. Oh, yes, Lord. Although you see me going so long. Oh, yes, Lord. I have my trials here below. Oh, yes, Lord. If, they, if you get there before I do, oh, yes, Lord. Tell all my friends I'm coming to heaven. Oh, yes, Lord. The black liberation theologian James Cone sees in the spirituals a key form through which slaves resisted being determined by their oppression and having an alternative way of existence even despite the pressures and oppression that they were suffering. He says that the spirituals are the people facing trouble and affirming, I ain't tired yet. But the spiritual is more than dealing with trouble. It's a joyful experience, a vibrant affirmation of life and its possibilities. The spiritual is the community in rhythm, swinging to the movement of life. And so I think what we might call lament or righteous anger at 
the injustice and the need for change uh, exemplified is exemplified in the language of the blues and the spirituals. And it takes the trauma and grief of oppression and turns it into something beautiful that calls others to gather and act for change. Um, so I just want to take us a moment, if you've got two questions coming up, just in two, kind of together, and uh, twos or threes around you, with those around you, have a think about this question. Got that. Yeah, just discuss what stops you hearing lament of those crying out, uh, either in pain or for justice. And then also, I'd add this other question, discuss what needs grieving or lamenting in society today. So just take a moment, twos and threes, just to discuss that with each other. If you don't know each other, just introduce yourself. Okay, let's uh, let's pull it. So, any, anyone want to um, anyone want to share? Kind of someone go there. Right. Right, right. Yeah, so that's, I think that is a real, we might, it, there's kind of two aspects. So he was talking about, he lived in D.C. and endlessly saw um, demonstrations and protests. And that sense is the kind of equivalent of compassion fatigue. There's a kind of protest fatigue. Um, and, and that is, that dulls our sense and that we're not moved in our gut, you know, maybe. And there's, there's a kind of, a, as you said, a kind of jadedness that, that comes in. What about other? I guess similarly to what Chris said, kind of a weariness. Right. There's we're bombarded on a daily basis with yeah. uh, negative news, and so there's just there's a weariness of how much I can take on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, and I think that is a real issue in 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 our day. I would say our own pain. It's hard to be sympathetic and empathetic when you're in your own pain. You're kind of in a primal state trying to protect yourself, and then even if you can recognize their issues. Well, if I'm going to survive, or they're going to survive, and yeah. you don't want to think that way, but it's just a natural instinct to do so. Yeah, no, I think that's a very so that that sense of often when we have undergone trauma or in pain ourselves, that kind of closes down the field of vision. Or, or if we're involved in conflict, conflict is if you do. I used to work as a mediator. It, it the conflict always narrows the field of vision. You can only see what's immediately affecting you or in, immediately in front of you. And it's very hard to see in a bigger picture or respond to other things going on around you. Um, we also said like being tied to a particular group where God forbid you go talk to the, someone of the other side or you, yeah. you can't do that. And yeah. so your identity is tied into a group. Right, right. Um, and to disagree with the group means you're, I mean, it's, in this day and age means you're ostracized. Right. There is no room for disagreement. It's either you take the whole um, philosophy or... Yeah. yeah. So to even, even to respond to someone in, who's pain, in the pain and suffering is somehow to be an act of treachery because you're somehow validating against the ideological frame that you're committed to. So the, the simple act of care. I was, I was doing some work with a church actually up the road from me in North Carolina and the pastor was very concerned there'd been a group of refugees who'd been um, brought into the town and he just wanted to do a simple act of like, these are new neighbours, how could we, just simple humanitarian, like we should do some English languages, English as a foreign language classes and some stuff for the kids, it must be a bit disorientated. And he'd kind of, it'd been very controversial in the church and, and, the, and he's thought, what has this come to? Just a simple act of humanitarian care. 
have become a hugely politicized issue. They can't, and that, that, that somehow the, they've been gutted from the ability to, one, one or two most, one or two back here. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of similarly to like both of those ideas, I think that like humans are creatures of comfort. And so the idea of getting like putting somebody else's needs in front of your own is uh, like inherently more uncomfortable than like like pr uh, prioritizing yourself. Right. Um, and so I think that it is easier to sort of like sit back and say like, oh, no, I don't really want to like uh, prioritize the goods of like the things that are hard for other people instead of myself, because there's this idea that like it can only be one or the other. Right. You know, it's not something that benefits the whole, even though. Yeah, yeah. And excellent. I didn't want to get, yes, they were very keen. Yeah. I'll come around. Um, we were going to say pride. So right. it's the idea that uh, we know best, we know better than the person who's suffering, we know better than uh, those who disagree with us. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. A good Augustine would be very happy. Pride, the original human <laughs> sin. <laughs> very good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I think these are all, you know, we could, I'm sure all of you have very rich answers to that. Like, it's important to be aware what inhibits, you know, the, the ways in which we have been eviscerated, that our guts have been ripped out and but also the, the very real challenges of that we can't respond to everything we can't kind of do everything it's it's hard to do that so I I, I want to have a sense of like the, the tension of that we we're, we're always you know we're fallen finite creatures we're not the Holy Spirit who can be omnipresent there's a limited of things we can care about but and and but at the same time we are caught up in systems and structures which inhibit us and desensitize us and de-skill us and rip our guts out from being able to respond to very real needs and, and simple kind of humanitarian gestures of caring for the, for the neighbor. Um, and I think one of the, to expand on this point, I think one of the issues we, we face are um, the kind of ways in which certain political strands in our day and you've touched on all of this already, inhibit us from hearing genuine laments, genuine grief-filled cries. And I'm not talking about the kind of hot anger that the Tent of the Presence document talked about. I'm talking about those genuine cries of lament and grief and calls for help. And I think one of these, um, if we're going to have, is the, uh, what we call the kind of politics of respectability. And this, is, uh, this kind of inhibits hearing grief-filled cries. And uh, this takes on a number of forms. You've got kind of a, a liberal emphasis on rational consensus and polite conversation as the kind of paradigm of what political civility involves. And uh, my colleagues at Duke love this. This is basically the seminar room as the model for politics. It's a terrible model for politics, but it's the kind of, this is really how you should do politics. We should all be in a kind of seminar room. And of course, puts people like me, the professors, like we're, we're the best at it. Of course, in a, without actually having to actually build any relationship with anyone, it all becomes about discourse and, and, and operating like that. Um, but I think then there's also a kind of emphasis amongst professionals on being a kind of impartial expert. There's bourgeois notions of respectability and not showing emotion in public. So certain kinds of emotions get policed. Oh, you're being too angry or upset. You know, you should get, that should be, that's reserved for a kind of private space. And then dominant church cultures of being polite and deferent to those in authority. Now, I'm not saying be uncivil. I'm not saying being, don't be polite. My mother would get very upset with me uh, and thought she'd brought, brought me up wrong if I was saying that. It's just the problem is when these kinds of things become straitjackets, which limit 
whose voice is heard, whose pain is taken seriously, and who, which kinds of bodies count in, in public discourse. And what all of these tend to add up to do is we end up with churches and theologies which teach us to govern ourselves better rather than how to seek better forms of government. And, and something's gone wrong in that equation, I think. But I think there's not just that politics of respectability. We've also got a politics of denunciation. And we can contrast the grief-filled uh, cries of lament uh, or righteous anger I'm talking about with the kind of hot anger and its accompanying politics of denunciation. And a politics of denunciation is not interested in really abiding with those who are lamenting because it already knows what the problem is, it already knows who should be listened to, and it already knows what the solution should be as well. All it's really trying to do is recruit you to its ideological program, whether of the left or the right. And the politics of denunciation tends to follow a very well-worn script, which people, political consultants, have paid lots of money for. It's an interesting, it's actually developed uh, as a script by actually environmental campaigners in the 1970s and then taken up by the right uh, in various forms and kind of been perfected on certain kinds of um, talk radio. But you get, you get this on both left and right. This, isn't, this, this is a kind of uh, impartial thing. But the, the first element of a script, of the script of the politics denunciation is scapegoat. You find an enemy, then you demonize, you define an issue as good against bad or in an either or way. You then dumb down the script and lose all complexity and ambiguity from the issue. So it appears as a simple choice between good and evil. You then develop a sense of victimhood in the ones talked to, thereby diminishing any sense of them having the agency to change the situation for themselves. And then you appear as the Messiah. You present yourself as the solution, as the only possible savior to rescue the victim and make the world come out all right. So this is a very, very common script, again, on left and right, and it's followed as a certain kind of playbook, which we all get seduced by and fills, and people make a lot of money off this. You know, there's the, the, the kind of circulation of this on social media, the rest of it, generates coin for some people who are mostly not you. Um, and so we should be kind of alert to that. Um, but a politics of denunciation really is not interested in listening. It's just about a kind of ideological recruitment. And it generates this highly polarized and denunciatory politics that puts program before people. Uh, and so any form of compromise, as we're hearing before, isn't how do we negotiate a common life. Any form of compromise is treachery. It's betrayal. Uh, and, and I think that is a deep, deep problem in our contemporary political moment. And then a third way I think we uh, are, are inhibited from really listening to what others are saying and really hearing grief-filled cries is what I call the kind of politics of escape. Uh, and I've mentioned this before, the kind of ways in which we either get caught up in, dis in kind of technologies of distraction or um, get kind of various forms of escape, whether it's a kind of drug uh, uh, kind of stuff or retreated integrated communities, but i.e. this kind of movement out from any kind of shared life into uh, self-serving communities or uh, literally kind of 
losing the plot in some way. But I think there's a more recent one, it was well, a very ancient one, but it's come back, which is a kind of um, politics of escape in a kind of apocalyptic fervor, that people get caught up in these kind of revenge fantasies of apocalyptic fervor uh, that somehow feed um, a kind of as a compensation for a, for a loss of agency, a loss of being able to control the world around you. And so it kind of compensates for that by the sense, well, I'm in this kind of movement to bring in the millennium through our kind of righteous anger. Um, but I think, again, this is a kind of fantasy world uh, which inhibits any real meaningful ability to build a common life with others. So this politics of respectability, politics of polarization and denunciation and politics of escape are all refusals to listen. They're strategies of control that insulate us from hearing what really needs to change and of our need to repent and be changed as persons if we're going to respond in a loving, hopeful and faithful way. So just take a moment to have a think about these questions. Um, how does the politics of respectability prevent us from listening to the cries of our neighbours? How does the politics of denunciation prevent us from hearing what is going on? And where do we see the politics of escape most evident in the churches? So just, again, two and three, just take a moment to discuss that. Okay, let's have, uh, just have one or two, I'll just take one or two examples from, from, from each of those. So, um, anyone here on politics respectability, where we see it? Anyone willing to give an example? Go ahead, okay. I just would like to, to challenge your first question okay. because you put such a negative load on the word respectability. Uh, surely reasonable people would try to be respectable in the best sense of the word, and, and if other people are shouting something opposite, why should we listen to them? <laughs> no, it's a good... So, yeah, no, so I think that's a fair, that's a fair point. Um, the, issue, the issue there is that uh, it's not that kind of being civil is necessarily a bad thing. It's partly this thing of, like, how does, how does a kind of enforced civility constrain certain people, but also the sense in which... I don't know. I'm using that one. Um, this uh, is also the also the sense in which um, this uh, the, the kind of demand. If so, let, let's use a different kind of example. If a mother has lost her child and is renting her hair in grief, is it really okay to say, well, "Just can you kind of can you put that in a kind of rational memo and then pass that on"? Like we wouldn't say that. That would be a deeply inhuman. So. There's hearing certain kinds of kind of visceral cry out of a place of grief is one thing, and the demand that that has to be put in a certain kind of rational public discourse is an in inappropriate demand. Now, that is very different from no one should have to listen to abusive, libelous slurs, online trolling. These are that, that this isn't the a heartfelt cry of lament. That's just being downright rude, uh, nasty, mean. We have a whole language for that kind of speech. Uh, and often it's illegal speech. It's libelous um, and needs to be prosecuted. So I'm not talking about... There's no imperative to listen to the online trolling and just nastiness that's out there. But, that's, but often I think then the welter of that 
overwhelms the hearing of the mother renting her hair because of the grief. Um, so on on the third point, I think it's you know my experience you know being a Christian since I was three years old is you know the righteous vanguard is pretty convicting, and so just the thought that we can do it better if we just escape. I mean, today your message was pretty challenging that you lean into exile or when it feeling exiled in the post-Christian you, the, you know, the thought that we've had is let's go escape to the gated community. So I think it's, it's tough because a lot of friends think, well, yeah, this is how you protect your kids. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 No. And I think, and I, you know, that, that is a very real, you know, I, again, I don't want to say, oh, it's a, terrible sentiment you do you want you want to protect those who you think are vulnerable you want to kind of cherish that which is precious to you and it is a counterintuitive discipleship program to build a common life with pagan others who were very different like that just feels totally against the grain but it i think that's is exactly what scripture calls us to do again and again and again because where do we learn faith, hope, and love? Where do we learn courage? Where do we learn the basic Christian virtues? But from having to navigate difference in relation, often with very difficult people. Because after all, if we just hang out with people who like us and who agree with us, we're going to be immature. We're not going to grow as Christians. We're not going to grow as disciples. And so there's a basic refusal of the call of Christ to grow up into mature Christians who then display what the glory of God involves in this place and this with these people at this time. Um, so I think there's a lot at stake in that. One, one more from over here. Right at the back. Okay, you're going to make me get my steps in. <laughs> I think it has to do sometimes with um, uh, escaping into... Um, even the notions and in, in realities of heaven can be, an, uh, some people can take that into a level of, of an escape from even their daily reality. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I, I see that a lot. Yeah. You know? yeah. I think that's a very, that's actually a very important theological point, this sense of, I've, I've come to call them um, kind of theologies of extraction that somehow to be saved is to be extracted from creation, extracted from the world, extracted from everything, and, and, and atonement and salvation is some kind of cosmic exchange that takes place divorced from material, sweaty, palpitating bodies, like that somehow truly spiritual is getting away from what's material rather than the healing and renewing of creation and the fulfillment of creation and taking up of creation into the triune life of God. And Christ's ascension doesn't ascend as a spirit, it's ascent as a wounded body whose body is then transfigured in communion with God. And often our soteriologies, that's a technical term for salvation theology, our salvation theologies are highly etherealized and spiritualized and they emphasize a kind of extraction from the world, and as if that's the truly good thing to do, not as when Christ meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they meet Christ and have that revelation of who Christ is, they aren't then go, right, let's carry on, off we go, further and further out of the city. No, they turn around. They go back into the city, the very place where Christ has been crucified, the very place that was beginning to persecute the followers of Christ, the very place that was seemingly deeply hostile to the message. 
That's the fruit of the encounter with Christ. You go back into the city, and that's the picture in Revelation I was talking about uh, this morning. So just bring him down, and we'll have time for Q&A. Kind of where, where do we build this common life with others, not like us, and to embody a more faithful, hopeful, and loving form of politics? Well, as I've been saying, I think there's a kind of key element is, is this beginning with listening and what are listening kinds of politics. And democracy at its best does enable this kind of hearing of cries uh, and listening to others. The basic commitment of democracy as a form, and I'm not talking about democracy as a voting system or the rule of law, or this is kind of democracy as a kind of mode of legitimizing state structures. I'm talking about a much more informal vision of democracy. Democracy uh, as a kind of how we navigate and negotiate a common life. And it really involves kind of three things. It involves a commitment to dialogue or suasion or persuasion rather than violence as a way of solving shared problems. It involves a basic commitment to the dignity of each individual uh, that someone actually has intrinsic worth, and I shouldn't kill or torture or treat them badly, uh, and involves, thirdly, some sense that people should have some control over their living and working conditions, that if we're going to grow up and be fully realized our humanity, we can't be rendered completely passive to others always doing things to us or for us. There's a taking responsibility and being able to act with others to shape our, our, our shared life. And so I think democracy in that sense, which we don't often think about it in that sense, but I think that's the most basic sense of democracy. If you, the original term is uh, demoscratia, people power. So the, peop, the power of the people to determine their, their common life. Um, that sense of democracy gives a sense of we can actually, it's premised on listening. It's premised on the possibility of dialogue. Because if I'm listening to someone, I'm not killing them. If I'm listening to someone, I actually have to have some kind of relationship with them. If I'm listening to the, them, I, I, it means I'm not creating a structure of coercion so that they can be heard and taken seriously as someone with dignity and that they can have a say in the world uh, uh, around them and have some agency to affect it. So it's very, very, very key, I think, this vision of democracy. And then through that kind of democratic politics, of that understood in that way, there's a sense in which then I have to encounter others not like me, and that demands that I grow in patience, humility, courage, love. So I learn in a kind of democratic politics in that mode, basic Christian virtues. So to give two examples of this, um, I think, have I got them up there? Yeah, so a kind of politics embodied in hospitality. What, what do I mean by that? Well, a good example of this is something like the hospice movement. Does anyone know the hospice movement? Um, kind of, so the hospice movement was emerged in Britain in the, in the 1950s. Dame Cicely Saunders, very uh, deeply committed Christian doctor, and she was looking at developments in modern medicine, was kind of concerned that as a result of modern medicine, people's life would be extended beyond when they would otherwise have kind of uh, died uh, because of the interventions in modern medicine. While that was a very good thing, um, people were living longer, there was a kind of co cost to that, that there could be an enormous amount of suffering in people's dying. And she was also concerned that somehow euthanasia was a kind of response to, and seemed to be a pastoral and caring response to uh, those who were suffering in their dying because of heightened 
forms of pain. And so she's kind of started the hospice movement, invented a whole new form of medicine, palliative medicine, which is, builds out a whole new way of managing pain, uh, which is now taken up worldwide, uh, and the hospice form of care, which is a very holistic form of care for people who are dying. Um, and this, so this began, this, this was a hospitable response to a real wound in the world. It was a real problem, the, the problem of people suffering in their dying. Uh, but it was an open, hospitable, anyone, you didn't, you didn't have to be a Christian to take part, anyone could touch, see, taste, smell, and see what people who were committed to hospices meant by good care for the suffering dying. So it began with a yes, and the first word was a word of yes. And in the light of that yes, hospice care and palliative care as a way of treating the suffering dying, we say no to this, euthanasia, and that as a legitimate way of responding. But, it, but, but the no is consequent upon the yes. Now, this might be controversial, but I think we can contrast that with the response to abortion. Whatever you think about the abortion debate, it's a highly contested debate, but the first word was not yes, the first word was no. Uh, and there has been very little positive kind of alternative out there. If, there had, if the first word had been what did really good uh, antenatal care, structures of care so that people could kind of care for their children, uh, what were the kind of support structures needed for that to be possible, and because we're for this, we say no to that, I think the debate would have gone very differently. Uh, but that hasn't, that hasn't. So you have this very stri striking contrast between a kind of hospitable politics embodied in something like hospice care, and I think how the debate has gone in relation to abortion. Um, Another kind of very different kind of politics is what I'd call a politics of the common life embodied in something like community organizing. And there's a great example of it here in LA, One LA, and I think you should join that, join the coalition. Um, but that, that brings together different institutions. You can't join as an individual. You uh, can join, only join as an institution. So churches, synagogues, residence associations, university departments, all sorts of people are members of, of the coalition. And it's not a national politics. And, and part of the problem is we often get caught, our kind of local struggles and particular issues get caught up in the national debate, which operates at a very abstracted level. And we lose sight of very local issues, whether it's the stop sign or you know, what's happening to the park or kind of living wage ordinances or whatever it is. And uh, community organizing is a kind of long-established form. It builds coalitions across points of difference. And I was very involved in this in the London context, and we had um, very conservative Muslim groups and very conservative Catholic and Pentecostal groups and all sorts of people involved in this because there was a sense in which we all were part of a community of fate that had real issues of shared concern we could come together on. We didn't agree. There are lots of things we didn't agree on. Uh, and, and, but they were, but there, there was we could still come together and do good work together on issues we did agree on. And so then the disagreements, there was a very different context in which those disagreements were held and we could hold them in dealing with the ambiguity, dealing with the complexity, dealing with a sense of tension amidst relationship uh, because there was ecology of trust through having worked together on issues we did agree on and did see a need for, because it affected all of us. And I think that kind of, that's just, I think there are many examples of that, but community organizing is one I've, I've studied extensively um, as, a, as a positive model. So I think what's 
been largely forgotten in the world of party politics is a kind of hard truth that any form of just and compassionate common life to be, to be developed is that all of us must lose or give up something if that common life is to emerge. And part of what it means to live as finite and fallen creatures is this kind of negotiation and navigation of some losing and some winning, and then the recalibration of that as life changes and goes on. If you think about that in a family context, uh, if one person determines how the, how the family unit goes and has, to, has it all their way, that's a recipe for family breakdown and it's all going to go wrong. There has to be a constant process of recalibration if the family is to function together. And there's a sem similar sense in building and sustaining a just and hospitable communities uh, involves this constant process of recalibration. Now, of course, the temptation and sin of the privileged and powerful is to fix the system so that they lose nothing and others always lose. And that's what democracy enables, is for the cries to be heard of who's always losing so that we can recalibrate the system so that people can have some sense of participating in a, in a more fair and just and generous shared life. And I think why I think a central reason democratic politics of the kind I've sketched here is important, because it allows a genuine politics of listening in all sorts of different ways so that a more equitable and more just and more generous common life could emerge. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it there. Let me just let me just close with, with with one word. Going back to where I began, if to be the kind of human creature we are is to be enmeshed in interdependent relations of mutual responsibility and care, and for if for us to flourish, that we have to have a certain quality and character, a virtue, if you like, of those relations for us to really come into who we are. There's a sense in which politics is central to that process. And there's a beautiful phrase for Irenaeus of Lyon, was a, was a fourth century uh, theologian. Um, and he has this wonderful phrase that the, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. But what does it mean to be fully alive? It means to be involved in these kinds of interdependent, mutually responsible relationships which we build together through politics. And so politics doesn't look like what we think of as something beautiful. It's conflictual, it holds tension, it doesn't have harmony. But if human beings are to be fully alive, we have to engage in politics of a particular quality and character. And that is an act of real beauty, because real beauty is human beings glorified before God as true creatures who Christ uh, takes up and fulfills. And so I think there is a bigger charge here about how we are envisaging politics, even while we have to recognize the reality of its corruption and the way it's hollowed out and we are all eviscerated from the kinds of politics uh, we're involved in. So let me close it there. Um, why don't you turn to each other and, and uh, say one or two things that really struck you from what I've been saying, and then we'll open it out to a kind of broader Q&A uh, from there. But just like capture one or two things that really kind of struck you in, in what I was saying.
Okay, let's. Um, my lovely, my lovely assistant, young, young Ashley Meany, uh, is going to bring the bring the mic around. Um, I should also say I'm I'm institutionally required to carry literature wherever I go. Uh, this is some stuff on the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies, um, which, if you're interested in studying Anglican things, this is Anglican Church, um, formerly Baptist, uh, or Episcopal things, or whatever it is. Here's some literature. So I just, I have to, I've fulfilled my fiduciary responsibilities on that front. Um, so yeah, any questions, General? So one over here. Oh, one over there. I'm so sorry. It's all right. <laughs> I'll give it right back. So from the beginning, my question is, what do you do when people don't agree with the nature of man? So, I mean, this is more of a very Rousseauian, it feels like that's the kind of culture we're in right now. Right, right. We know what's better. You all give up a portion because man is not political. They're not communitarian. They're wild and they're, and they're true. The true nature of man is what I'm actually have a paper due tomorrow about it. So I'm also like, <laughs> right. I'm not going to answer it for between you. Between <laughs> Rousseau, Aristotle and Burke. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just, so, so just to give a little bit of background of that. So basically, um, there's this famous slide. So, so, um, Rousseau, French philosopher, um, uh, kind of pre-influential on the French Revolution. And he has this great line, in the, he writes this little book called The Social Contract, which is very influential. And he has this great, the opening line of it is, man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. And the kind of, it's kind of great summary of, of his basic view of things, which is somehow, um, who I am pre-exists any social relationships. Any social relationships in many ways is an imposition and a limitation on who I am. And so the sense in which uh, I've got to throw off um, the shackles of civilization. Civilization is inherently corrupting. Uh, social norms impose upon me. And liberation is freedom from all these things. Now, again, there's left-wing versions of that. I've got to throw off all social moral norms and restraints, and that's what makes me free. And there's right-wing versions of that. Libertarianism, uh, don't tread on me, and we've got to kind of get rid of any constraints on the market. There's a kind of libertarianism of the right and libertarianism of the left. And these are deeply, I would say, the inheritors of Rousseau. Um, and again, there's left and right versions of this. Uh, but this is basically that the true reality is the individual who pre-exists social relationships and who comes to expression through them. But that just makes you, in relation to me, a merely kind of instrumentalizing relationship. Because what really matters is my self-expression. And any limitation on that is bad. It's unfreedom. The account I've just given is completely the opposite. And I think that's the scriptural account. It's not the only account. There's Aristotle has an account of this. There's other philosophies of the world which have kind of this, which I can't be me without you. There is no me without you. I can only be truly fulfilled through particular kinds of relationship with you. And therefore, to me, to be truly me, I need you. And this, of course, I would say is a Trinitarian picture. The picture of interrelationship uh, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is what we're given as the true picture of ultimate reality, communion. And so this sense of coming to truly be fulfilled as a creature involves various forms of communion. So we have whole political philosophies which are geared around a notion of freedom as uh, freedom from constraint and freedom from and a very rival view of political kind of life as it's all about how do I have the 
what kinds of quality and character of relationships do I need to be truly human? Um, now, so what do you do, the question then is, what do you do when you get the kind of libertarian view as against the relational view? Um, well, and, and also, yeah. like, when you blame everything, I mean, from discourse and inequality, you don't have a chance in hell because it's society that corrupts. No matter what you do, society, and there's no, I, like, to me, the fundamental difference is, is there's a, he sees, he sees human as these, like, perfectibility, whereas Aristotle have more a teleological view where it's, well, we're all sinful. We're all fallen. So you have to start from that point as opposed to, like, oh, no, we can make you into this perfect thing. And I really see, like, that's where I'm, like, you know, I, I'm getting maybe a little personal, but, like, very angry because I'm, I'm losing my ability to work. Right, right. And it's that I'm, I'm not a human yeah. who wants to do their job because they love it. They're more worried about the organization telling this to Jim not so emotionally earlier. They don't want to hear me as a person who's worked for this company for 18 years. Right. No, these are the rules we have to follow. So what do you do? Like, what do I do with that? And that's where my, like you said, underneath anger is the grief. And I've always known that because if you keep scratching the surface of anger, it comes out as this. Yeah. And I'm just so sad for people that don't have a connection, any sort of connection to a God, because they wouldn't be doing this kind of thing. So what do we do with that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I won't speak to the specifics of your situation, but I think that sense of how do we form um, communities where people do have a sense of connection and therefore do have a sense of of kind of recognition and respect within those communities. And then the sense of, actually, I am somebody here and I'm recognized as, as being somebody. And even though there can be other contexts in which there isn't that recognition, there's a sense in which my basic humanity is seen and heard and recognized amongst these people in this place at this time. And I think that is, that, that, that is the most basic level that needs to be there if people are gonna have some sense of agency and purchase on, on the world around them. But yeah, thank you for that. There was, yeah, point over here and then point over there. Um, my name's Chris. I lived in DC for a while, like I mentioned. Um, I was a mile away from the Capitol building when January 6th happened and right. one of my best friends was locked in his congressperson's office, like huddled, feared for his safety. In the aftermath of that, Fuhrer and the horribleness that happened, the Capitol Police just blocked off the entire grounds around the building for seven months. They didn't come down until mid-July. Now, the plaza on the east side of the building was a space that we locals love to use. Um, we would protest there. We would take picnic lunches out there. I, would, I remember multiple times hanging out with friends there. Um, my love of photography was even born on that space. And it seemed like in response to the break-in that happened, it was just total opposite, like let's just shut down this arena for public space and just or for public speech and for public enjoyment. Mm -hmm. So the question is how do we balance the break-in outrage versus the complete totalitarian silencing of any voice? 
Yeah. So, I mean, like, no, I think it's a very good point. This, this kind of, and we face that, we face that in the wake of 9-11. There's a number of these, you know, constantly, it's a constant challenge to kind of modern democratic life is the kind of balancing of security uh, with liberty in terms of and freedom of expression, freedom of association. Although I think we tend to emphasize freedom of expression over and against freedom of association. And, and I think the good thing you're pointing to is about the kind of freedom of association that was, was shut down. Um, uh, so I think that is, there's, there's no right answer to that. It's always tension. Um, there's, it, there's always a kind of question of prudential judgments. At the same time, there's always a demand for a vigilance that the ways in which uh, uh, kind of attacks on security and the rendering of insecurity is then used as an excuse to endlessly um, and kind of extend what might call a politics of emergency. And there's a whole stream of thought around the kind of politics of emergency. We could kind of add it on to my politics of denunciation, respectability, etc. And in, in, in the emergency situation, the rule of law is suspended, all bets are off, anything goes. Um, and we saw that in a sense with the pandemic. Suddenly all sorts of things became possible which wouldn't have been possible before in response to the emergency. Or we see it in relation to hurricane disasters or whatever it is. There is this emergency moment when things just have to be done and we suspend the rule of law or we su suspend accountable procedures. And this, I think this is a, a very real problem. And uh, there's that great line from Rahm Emanuel, never, never let an emergency go to waste. And it feels like that's the... That's a mode of which, through which governments all around the world uh, have kind of learned that lesson very well. And we almost have the um, creation of a sense of emergency to justify then the suspension of the rule of law and the processes of accountability. Um, so yeah, so I think that is, there's, there's the genuine prudential judgments to be made about security and freedom of association and then there's the ways in which that emergency is used to utterly subvert the rule of law um, and just a word on the rule of law the rule of law isn't something you can kind of proceduralize or create the rule of law is a kind of social customary practice um, and we kind of lose it very easily uh, uh, and so the sense in which the kind of cultivation of why the rule of law matters um, is, you know, is something all politicians should be committed to. And yet, I think there's something we're seeing on, on both sides—a kind of undermining of that or a lack of commitment to that. But yeah, so I think I, I don't, that's not an answer, but it's by way of a kind of mapping out the different ways in which that 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 operates. And we had, yeah, with the with the mask. So, I mean, it, I think this morning and then this afternoon, there's certainly a nice, pretty picture of a mindset. And then in the practice of becoming more like a citizen that would, that would think and do these things kind of on habit, what would be your kind of recommendations, next steps, you know, and then any kind of action steps that uh, maybe helped you? Um, yeah, no, so it's good, good. I think, so, um, two, I guess two things in terms of action steps is, is think about your Thanksgiving table. 
Who's going to be sat around? It's a very, 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 very small scale. Think, what are the contexts in which you are, are encountering folk who you know the conversation often goes very badly or can go very badly? And try and imagine, like, what are the kinds of ways that conversation alternative, what are other ways of places to begin the conversation that the conversation might end up differently so that we can both experience both myself and the person whether it's Uncle Joe or Auntie Freya or whoever it is there's, there's a sense in which we can experience together a way of being in space together without it devolving into each ranting at the other and I think it, we, are, we are at a moment when even that most basic of things seems like hard work but actually, that's where the challenge is it's at that most basic level that we, we just have to have experiences of being able to be in, in, in disagreement with each other in often intimate spaces in ways that don't collapse uh, or just aren't avoid, avoiding. And, and that often begins with where do we begin the conversation? Where, where do we start the conversation? Um, so that's one very, very basic thing. I think there are other ways of doing it. So I mentioned one LA. I think there are forms of kind of local democratic politics which aren't pulled um, by the polarization. And, and they are they are out there. I mean just the one I'm I'm most familiar with is is this kind of community organizing form. But but I think there are others and, and looking out for those where you often get surprising points of coalition um, between in, in, in ways that often don't seem possible given the media scripts that we're, we're all... And to kind of finding those and experiencing those and inviting others to take part in those, I think that is a, a very concrete way of doing it. Um, and then I think it's kind of uh, watching how we... kind of being reflective about how we're consuming particular scripts and media feeds and what's that doing to us and do we need to kind of unhook a bit? Um, from some of those and, and, and what are perhaps feeds which aren't kind of operating in a highly polarized way whether of the left or, or the right and, and over time kind of fostering an imagination for this kind of more generative vision of politics and I'm, I'm kind of aware all of that seems kind of inadequate um, but hopefully that there's some places there to begin other here and then other there and then we'll move over to uh, I'm curious, at a more practical level for you and your family, do you ever see, or rather, how do you balance um, engaging with the common good while living in Babylon while also maintaining uh, meaningful Christian formation? You know, there's Christians like Rod Dreher who've written books about the Benedict Option to maintain meaningful formation. We need to withdraw into communities that might be seen as gated to some. Others mm -hmm. might seem more substantive or, you know, others who say we need to be out there, we need to be in the world, but sometimes we can then uh, lose our counterformational uh, practices mm -hmm. and lose our saltiness. And I'm curious for you, how do you see that with, for you and your children, um, maintaining a Christian identity yeah. while also uh, engaging meaningfully elsewhere? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, I'll come at it slightly sideways. So just part of my concern over this whole kind of question is I, I uh, worked in Central Eastern Europe just after the Berlin Wall came down, so kind of 91 onwards. And part of my role there was working with churches who were beginning to kind of engage in post-communist society. And obviously, it was a t 
totalitarian society, genuine totalitarian society, um, where they'd had a secret police and kind of persecution, real persecution of churches. And amazing opportunity to work with folk who'd be involved in smuggling Bibles into communist lands and this kind of stuff. What was very striking about that context is a lot of churches had formed these very, very tight, self-protective communities and against a genuinely hostile society, not a slightly kind of over-imagined one. Um, and, um, but actually what they'd ended up doing was replicating the very structures of surveillance and oppression in those communities uh, and, and very tightly controlled legalistic communities. But, and there was no, because in a sense, they'd lost touch with the broader society. And so what happened was their sense of, we're all doing this to protect ourselves, but actually we're not seeing, because we don't have meaningful relationship with those around us, we're not seeing how we're actually just mimicking the external threat rather than actually genuinely withdrawing from it. And so that was a profound lesson um, that kind of really shaped my imagination a lot about this. And kind of my title of my first book is Hospitality is Holiness, which is, it does seem to me this paradox in scripture that by going out, we discover real holiness. And when we try and create little enclaves of self-protection, we end up becoming very unholy. Um, and so I think there is this dynamic. And so in, in my own life, our, my own kind of existence um, is this kind of balance of cultivating family practices of worship and prayer together, saying grace, eating together, meals, um, these kinds of very simple things, uh, doing this together. But also then, how do we kind of go out and engage in broader forms of, you know, whether it's cultural stuff to do with art or um, um, uh, going to political stuff and seeing how, you know, put, kind of taking my kids into different kind of contexts. Because I think one of the things that often happens is, and we've seen that in a kind of very physical way, um, uh, there's a sense in which but through the processes of self-protection, uh, I often think a good theology and a good kind of engagement with culture where we're actually thinking, helping our kids kind of think through what's actually going on and naming it, but actually through, it, through genuine engagement rather than showing them kind of pictures of it, as it were, is, is building up a robust immune system. And as we know with the immune system, unless it's your immune system is literally grown through the viruses that, that have attacked it. That's how kind of vaccines work. Everyone thinks about that, right? It's controversial. Um, but I'm just stating a scientific fact. Um, but our immune systems grow through that. And if we, we aren't exposed to that, we have very weak immune systems which can collapse at the first attack. And I've seen that again and again and again with friends and friends' kids. Like, they suddenly get to university, there's some question that comes up, <gasps> they've never thought about it, ah, there's a crisis of faith, and I'm like, really? Like, what was going on? Like, this is, you know, so I think there's a sense of growing robust immune systems that can actually grow through the challenges and, and actually be, and have a healthy immune system um, is key, but it, it takes kind of intentional engagement and where we're, we're not kind of sequestered away, and then you create a weak immune system which collapses at the first challenge. Um, there's, I want to get one from over this way and at the, at the back there. I'm just kind of conscious we've got a, got a right-wing bias from my view, but a left-wing from yours, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's here. 
Uh, yeah, I appreciate your time today. Um, I'm curious to know how optimistic you are uh, regarding Americans' ability to negotiate a shared conception of a common life, especially when I think uh, notions of social welfare are very different between people. And uh, I don't believe that there's very many shared common values anymore. So I was curious about what you think that negotiation process looks like. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, so I think there's two, two aspects of my answer to that, which is I think there's the reality of how we actually live, and then there's the scripts we're told to believe about how we actually live. And I think they're two very different realities. So the, the realities of how we live, um, uh, of, of most people, not everyone, but most people is whether in different neighborhoods or in workplaces or in um, schools, people are kind of rubbing up against each other and finding... Now, there are kind of hot-button issues which polarize the community, but, but after, around a whole bunch of issues, people actually work it out together and are remarkably resilient at doing that and have done it for a long time. It's just the frames of reference we're given and the language we're given completely have, uh, uh, disable us from seeing that reality, that, that, that we have a kind of blindness comes down. We don't actually see how we're doing life together with others who are very different to us. All we see is the polarization. So I think there's a real problem of how do we actually recognize how we're actually living and does that temper and is the context for the real points of genuine disagreement and genuine conflict, and there are, and these are, these are you know, it's politics, it rival visions of what, how flurrying should go, whatever the issue is. Um, so I think I'm, I'm hopeful in a, in a kind of modest way that people are able uh, to get along and show that again and again and again, and particularly at points of emergency, whether it's over fires or hurricanes or whatever it is, we do see that come, people do come together in amazing, beautiful ways. Um, but I'm not hopeful because of the political and commercial investments in telling us that we don't get along and can't get along and have nothing in common. Um, so I think there is a kind of, you know, that, I think that is a real challenge, as how do you break those scripts uh, and, and see them, see the divisions and see the um, uh, uh, contention in a bigger picture, and all the time we're being only told only to see the division and only to see the polarization. So we miss the bigger picture. Um, so yeah, I do, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful for the reality of that. I'm kind of not quite sure to what to make as, 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 as what will help us really see that. But I think doing things like this is part of that. And, and, and again, it's, these can seem very small things, but I kind of trust the parable of the mustard seed, that very small things can have very big fruit, and that's, that's part of the, God's economy of grace. Tiny things can grow very large very, very quickly, and we, we have seen that. Um, and again, having lived through the fall of the communist, uh, uh, fall of communism, no one would have predicted that the year before. And look, you know, his seeming impenetrable system collapsed and, and new possibilities emerged. And again, it wasn't always necessarily good things that came out of it, but lots of good things did come out of it. And it was a radical change that happened Kind of seemingly out of the blue. So we, we, you know, I've lived through historical moments when this has happened, even when it seems impossible. Um, so I think that's that's for me is 
kind of God's God's economy of grace, and we, we do see that at work socially and politically in different places. Um, but yeah. Uh, I, I'm afraid I must be the student from hell. I think I get an F in every class you teach, because I am having difficulty with some of your concepts here. And the idea that we can all sit down from different points of view and discuss and be rational and everything uh, seems to me to be a, a kind of utopian dream. Let me give you an example. Uh, Terry McAuliffe recently lost the election in uh, Georgia, I think in part because when he was asked what influence parents should have in their children's education, he said, absolutely none. Well, that filled me with horror. Uh, but on the other hand, the schools are letting in people from the Southern Poverty Law Center who are teaching little kids uh, things about sexuality that they haven't even dreamed of. You know, are they gay? Do they want to be um, changed gender or, or whatever? And, and I think that this is just polluting little minds. And I do remember that uh, an ethicist um, much better than I once said that uh, if anybody makes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better that he have a millstone hung around his neck and be thrown into the sea. And shouldn't we perhaps be incorporating some of that in the structure that you're envisaging? Yes, well, putting millstones around people's necks. <laughs> so yeah, so I think that's a very. Uh, so I don't. So I don't think it's. I don't think it's. You to take two two bits of the question there. There's a the kind of practical policy issue, and then there's a the kind of is is what I'm saying utopian. I don't think it is utopian. I think that. You know, as, as I began, the alternative to what I'm saying is either we're killing, coercing, or causing others to flee. So I don't actually think there is an alternative. You're either doing politics or you're doing one of the other things. So if you're committed to one of the other things, sure, that, there are a lot, that happens a lot in the world. I just don't think it's a very good thing. And I don't think most people are very, don't want to live like that. Um, so if we're going to do politics, then there are going to be genuine disagreements and take the issue you've just raised. Um, yes, that I have deep disagreements with that kind of approach. Are, is it okay that people take those kinds of radically different views to me? Yes, I think it is. That, that's, not an Ill, that's part of democracy. People can have very, very different views to each other. Should those things be enforced on others? No, that's a coercive system. But that people have very different views understandings of gender and sexuality to me yeah that's okay that's part of politics should i then coerce kill or cause them to flee because they take those views no i don't think we should um and i think that that's really what it boils down to is do we have some sense that there can be genuine different visions of human flourishing and when we say genuinely different like radically different but that that isn't the only truth that is there, that the same people who might hold those views, we might agree with about something completely different on a different thing. And again, I see that the whole time. That, and part of our problem today is we let a single issue define the totality of someone. Um, and that operates across the spectrum. Unless you're pro-life, then you, know, you must be a terrible person. Unless you hold this issue on racial justice or issue on uh, kind of gender and sexuality, then you must be a terrible person. And, and the thing is, I think that human beings are complex creatures with multiple loyalties and multiple kinds of commitments. But we have a politics which always wants to simplify what it means to be human rather than deal with the complexity of being creatures who have loyalty to their family, to their neighborhood, to their country, to their uh, church, to their firm. And these are conflicting loyalties which sometimes cohere and sometimes conflict. 
And so the navigation of that through forms of cultiv cultivating forms of shared life that allow for the reality of being complex people who can have multiply different views, and I might agree with you about this, but radically disagree with you about that, we're caught up in a politics, and that's what I mean by a politics of denunciation, which refuses that reality. And I just don't think as Christians we should conform to that script. I think we should actually recognize people have multiple loyalties and can think very different kinds of things and that we can actually find some things we agree on and some things we radically agree on. And meanwhile, we probably shouldn't be killing, coercing, or causing others to flee. Question here. What advice do you have for someone on an individual level of when issues become perceived as issues of morality and therefore highly emotional? Um, and when you encounter other people who maybe disagree and it stirs up these emotions, yet the relationship is not deep enough or there's not love or commitment with who you're talking to. And even in relationships of love and commitment, we know emotional emotions are difficult to talk about. But how do we approach that? Yeah, no, I think that's... I think one of the issues is we... You know, there, well, so there's a couple of things to say to that. So the, the first is I think we often make ultimate what are penultimate issues. So we, we invest in what are actually kind of prudential matters, um, school policies, uh, medical policies, whatever it is, we invest them with ultimate significance and therefore we're over-investing them and therefore they become irreconcilable, there can be no compromise. This is, if I've lost this, I've lost the end of history. Uh, and you know, you know, there's, and and I think that's part of, particularly on the left, we see the discourse about you know who's on the right side and the wrong side of history. So that, that if I disagree with you, or if I compromise, I'm not just compromising about a kind of prudential matter of tax differential policies. Um, should we have more market or more state? These are political penultimate kind of judgments. No, if I compromise, I'm compromising the end of history. If I'm, if I'm. If, you're, if you disagree with me, we're not having a political argument, we're having a metaphysical argument. Um, the ultimate end of all things is at stake here. And so I think there is a kind of need to de-escalate, de-escalate, and actually kind of have some sense of, is this issue really an ultimate issue, or is this a penultimate issue in which we can have legitimate prudential disagreements on? And I think part of our current moment is both sides are very invested following the kind of denunciatory script on making what, are, what should be just quite prudential matters, which you know we can have disagreements about, and I think it's better more of this or less of that, and well, I think I'd prefer more of that and less of this, into total either or Manichaean good or evil issues. And, and so I, I, would, I, would, I, need, I think we need more politics and less metaphysics, if you like, in our, in our politics. Um, and so, the, but then, because things get escalated, the emotions rise, and often then we don't have the ecology of trust with the person we're in conversation with. There isn't the depth of relationship there to hold tension and disagreement. And so the whole thing kind of collapses very quickly. And I think there is a prudential judgment to be made if there isn't the ecology of trust there, and, that, and, I, and actually I'm not invested in this relationship, is this really the conversation I want to be having with them? 
and, and it's okay to say, no, I don't. I don't think this is... And I think that's part of our problem, particularly in the online world. We get caught into having arguments and conversations, which I'm like, why are you having that argument? <laughs> why are you responding? It's just, there's no, there's no ecology of trust there. There's no meaningful relationship. There's nothing to be fought for in the relationship. So why? This is just making everyone upset. Um, so I think there is a kind of strategic disengagement from certain kinds of um, kinds of conversation when the quality and the character of a relationship isn't there uh, and we don't have a sense of mutual responsibility um, within which vehement disagreement can be held in the ambiguities and tensions of that. So yeah, that would be... Um, one, back there. Um, with the first... Yeah, yeah. And then... The, Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, I find it all really intriguing, so I'm struggling a bit in how to like frame the question that I want to ask. But I think um, the people over programs bit has stuck with me. And as I'm kind of thinking of the models of Christian civic engage engagement I've seen is people tend to want to legislate the kingdom come. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is like a more subversive nature of living the kingdom. Um, but in that sense, are there sometimes times where we do choose people over the Christian program even? Because in some ways, I'm inclined to let Babylon legislate how Babylon wants. And right. so sometimes I find that I'm inclined to vote opposite my beliefs because I'm interested in their flourishing as they've perceived it. And I'm curious if you can maybe elaborate on what you mean by that, people over programs, and how that relates to faithful Christian civic engagement. Yeah, no, great, great question. So yeah, I think a um, number of things to say on that. I mean, I think, so first is, I think there is this issue of, uh, this very tricky issue, how do we coordinate pursuit of the common good with pursuit of the kingdom of God? And equally, how do we not conflate pursuit of the common good with pursuit of the kingdom of God. It goes back to what I was saying before, like we suddenly, we make what are just common good issues about, you know, better or worse, more state, more market, whatever, into kingdom issues, and then it gets over-invested and we can't do politics anymore because it's really about the future of the kingdom of God is at stake, and therefore if I compromise, all is, all is up. Um, so I think there is a kind of learning to, to coordinate those things better and what does kind of... It, 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 if the kingdom of God is as much about uh, the quality and character of relationship of faith, hope, and love, what does it mean to conduct relationships in that way as we pursue penultimate goods in common? Clean water, decent education, road systems, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so I think there is uh, a kind of proper need to coordinate those two things. Um, in, in relation, I was going to say something, I can't remember the second bit of your question. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think, no, sorry, that was a great, great question. Um, so, I think part of, part of what is at stake there is there is a view, and, it, and there's been a real differences of view over Christian history on this. You know, we could, we could be the Amish or the Anabaptist line in which you say we contribute, you know, we'll pay taxes and take part in kind of 
Babylon, as it were, but we're going to be a city on a hill um, and let, you know, the government of America do its own thing. Um, or there's that much more kind of Calvinist idea that you are 11 and there's a need for the church to kind of be engaged to ensure that, you know, things don't go to hell in a handcart. Um, and, but then there's a, a kind of very prudential view you get out of someone like Thomas Aquinas um, and, and he, he has an interesting example. He, he looks at prostitution. Um, and should you ban prostitution? Uh, and his view, and he's thinking about the rule of law, and his, and his basic view is that you can ban certain things uh, and try and legislate morality, but that will often cause more harm than good. And so there's a kind of, in before Christ's return, there's just a kind of messy mix-up of trying to keep things you know, justly ordered to a certain extent, but not trying to do too much with the law, because what is a conversion of the heart issue uh, can't be enacted through law. And I think there is a sense in which, particularly in the States at the moment, there's a loss of a, a genuinely missional emphasis, i.e. there's a whole bunch of issues, which are moral issues, but are pretty rubbish if you're trying to legislate them from public policy. That policy is not the way to address those issues. Policies are very limited. The state is very limited in what it can do. Uh, and we should be rather kind of circumspect of what we look to control of the state to do. And there this, is this kind of view that somehow Christians should control the state and then they can enact some virtuous republic. Um, often what they'll enact will create more harm than good. Um, and there's a kind of long tradition of Christian thought of thinking about that, of what does it mean to live faithfully before Christ's return in the now but not yet of the kingdom of God. You have to embody as the church forms of the kingdom of God and point to that through embodied witness, but you can't do that just as church. You also need to pursue a just and generous common life with others because more often than not, if you think you are, you, you suffer the temptation of thinking you're the kingdom come as the church and then you've really lost the plot because you're not waiting for Jesus to return because you're, you're already somehow embodying Jesus here and now. Um, so you've lost the tension. Uh, but then also there's a kind of limit on what you can expect the state to do even while... Uh, there's a kind of basic set of things it, it, should, should, it should enable to allow human life to flourish. But the state isn't the bearer of human flourishing. Um, and, and I think that is an insight of kind of liberal democracy we, we lose, we're losing sight of. Um, it's the sense in which it, it's the self-limiting state enables certain things, but by self, it's not totalitarian, it should be self-limiting, uh, and therefore doesn't claim to rule everything and everyone. Um, in, in, in all aspects of their lives. And I think that is a tricky tension to pull off for, for the church. Um, and it does demand a certain kind of um, practical reasoning or prudential judgment uh, in that. But I think that's where often what we've lost the habits of is, is developing um, a, a, a kind of value to prudential judgments. We, we kind of either make everything a theological judgment or everything an ideological judgment. And this kind of slightly more modest, sober, limited sense of, I think this is a prudential matter, it doesn't appear very sexy, you know, but I think that's actually what we need is a recovery of the importance of prudence as a kind of value and virtue.
Uh, probably one. Okay. Um, thank you so much for being here today. Just, I'd love to end with a very practical note, if that's okay, and to pick up maybe on a hot issue in our city and how we go about. I love the common life politics, but to take the school system, many right. parents are afraid yeah. of what's being taught to children. Yeah, yeah. Practically, what does that look like when pursuing a common conversation and dialogue isn't available? Where you are wanting to sit down around the table and talk about how can we work together and how can we hear your perspective and but that isn't actually an option available what does one do as a parent when you're going how do we live in this world yeah. when our children are, ex are exposed to this yeah. when sharing this common life together we can take that approach but maybe it isn't reciprocated yeah. What so do I, we practically do? Yeah, so I think there's, I mean, so what I'd slightly push back on the idea that, that the conversation is not available. So I think the, the kind of process, so there's a, there's a number of things, and it's kind of mixed ecology kind of response. So there's, there's the question of how do you organize to build power to challenge the powers that be? So there's a straight organizing problem um, to sh so that the voice can be heard. Uh, often we will act alone or we just think this is our issue and we don't hear the stories of others. So there's a kind of listening campaign. How do you actually go out and it, who does share this issue? Is this just a tiny number of parents who have this issue? Or actually, is this a, there's a massive weight of people who, who share this issue. So there's a kind of organizing um, and, and hearing of who, who, who else shares this position. And then through that, one is also building the capacity to raise up that voice to challenge, you know, whoever the educational authority is. Um, I think as well as that, uh, and I think the democratic process does allow for that. Um, don't get mad, get organized kind of idea. Um, uh, but I think on top of that, there are, there's a place for uh, alternative schools, uh, um, there is kind of ways of kind of prefiguring different ways of doing things and that's also part of the space and can, you know, and some parents may, may be very motivated to do that and whether that's homeschooling forms or Christian schools or, and that again, we see all of that and that's part of, we need an institutional diversity, it can't be just one system, uh, it can't be a kind of monopoly on education if you like. Um, by the state or by the market. Um, so you need a kind of variety of institutional forms out there. And some parents will be there, kind of motivated to do that. Again, we, we see that around about the place. Um, and then I think there's also uh, engaging with uh, those who, you know, see, who, who are kind of putting forward these policies and, and are kind of genuine, rather than kind of working off a kind of cliched set of scripts, what actually is being asked and often we see we saw it you know watching a number of interviews in the Virginia thing about kind of critical race theory when people are actually asked they didn't actually know what they were talking about um, so there's a sense there is a sense in which actually asking what's going on and what really is being happening because what really is the ideology or idea behind this who who is the progenitor of it and can they be talked to and kind of engaged in in some way so I think there's a there's a range, and people will have different motivations for different bits of that picture. But often, we kind of, we, we think on an issue like that, there's only one way, we can't do anything, or it's just us, or 
we just kind of uh, look for some champion to do it for ourselves and represent us rather than actually getting organized between ourselves. Um, and I think the other aspect of that um, is kind of realizing that um, we can often view this in terms of kind of this is just a Christian issue. Christians are being particularly persecuted. And one will discover all sorts of weird and wonderful people who share that view. And so you, in that very issue, you discover actually a common life with all sorts of people you wouldn't ordinarily thought you would agree with on that issue. But because one hasn't listened or gone out and built a relationship, one doesn't know. And you think it's only us and our little holy huddle and we're being particularly persecuted by this. Like, I don't think that's often the case. I think there's often, weird, often strange coalitions emerge around issues like this. Um, and you can't presume to know the answer before one's listened. And often we already think we know who our friends are and who our enemies are before we've actually gone out and, and listened and heard. And, and I'll end with this one funny thing. I think there's a very key insight. One of my favorite contemporary theologians or theologians of the modern period is, is Marvin Gaye uh, as one of the greatest albums of all time, uh, which is what's going on. Uh, and, and I think it's very important to begin with Marvin's question, which is what's going on, and truly beginning from that place. And often we don't begin there. We, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin has this great pamphlet written in the Russian Revolution uh, called What is to be done? Uh, and the trouble is we often begin with Lenin's question, what is to be done, before we've asked Marvin's question, which is what's going on? And you know you're in a bad place when you're asking Lenin's question before Marvin's question. <laughs> Um, can we just give a big round of applause and thank you to Luke so much for the whole day. It's been wonderful. I, I wonder if you'd mind praying for us, Luke. Would that be all right? Um, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Luke's going to pray for us and then I'll close. Okay. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for your anointing on each person here. I thank you for the call on their lives. I thank you that you take delight in them as creatures, disciples, as those who you enjoy communion with. I pray that you see their imagination for how in small and large ways they can foster a more just and generous common life with those they are in relationship with and in the communities they're embedded in. And I pray for this church that it might be known as a place of faithful witness and a bearer of God's shalom in the streets and city around it. And that people might therefore taste and know that the Lord is good. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Um, I'm sure Luke will be around for a minute or two if you want to have a personal chat with him. Thank you so much.